everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. I actually, shouldn't say another. It's been like three weeks since the last one appeared. Uh, the goal is to produce these more often as the season heats up and try to bring in more interviews and more voices. But today there's a familiar voice who's come back to Cricket with an Accent. It's uh, Aftab Khanna, uh, who was here reviewing one of the India-England test matches and uh, has shown total dedication managing a different time zone and you know work-life balance and kids. He's a new dad. So, yeah, I'm just very grateful that Aftab is doing this at uh, 5 a.m. in the morning in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Aftab. Thanks for having me again, Sakib. Look forward to our chat. Uh, you definitely left an impression on some of the listeners and um, I enjoyed our conversation. So the goal is uh, to have you more often and, you know, we'll discuss that along the way. Uh, so a big championship has been won by New Zealand. Their first, I think, trophy since maybe... Uh, I, I don't know how long, but they have been the perennial bridesmaid, the mm-hmm. uh, you know the consummate nice guys. If that word is still okay <laughs> to be thrown around, uh, yeah. What do you what do you make of this final? What are the uh, first thoughts that come to mind forty eight hours later? And then you know we can take a deeper dive on how this was possible from New Zealand's and and uh, but uh, just your initial kickoff uh, statement for this conversation. Yeah, I think uh, it was it was an interesting game, and um, I'm I'm glad they kept a reserve day for the final um, because if it wasn't uh, for the sixth day, we wouldn't have had the result, and that wouldn't have been a you know great look for the ICC, considering the fact that there are a lot of people who can very easily jump onto the bandwagon and say you know Test cricket is dead, and you know here you have a final of a marquee Test championship, and it's been ruined by rain, and people are sharing the trophy. So um, even though India lost, I'm glad the game had a result because I think um, it's good overall for the concept itself. Listen, I mean, uh, I mean, all of us have some some of the other problem with the way the championship is designed. I mean, given the nature of Test cricket, the amount of time it takes, the amount of teams involved, you'll never have a perfect. World Test Championship um, that'll that'll make everybody happy. So um, I, I concede the fact that you know you, you could nitpick and say New Zealand played more tests at home, or you know they they didn't won in didn't win in specific countries. But given the format and given the structure, they were there as as one of the top two teams. Um, they've been a great Test team over the last. Um, last four or five years um and it's kind of borne out by by the numbers um as well they've they've been close to um you know winning close to about um 60 to 70 percent of their test matches at home which is very similar to the numbers that india have or or australia have and i think at at a reasonable level sakib if you would say like who are the top three sides in test cricket today you would probably come up with india new zealand and australia and you could maybe you know say australia england new zealand maybe jostle for uh, two to four you know if if on the rankings basis india is one so i think when when you look at that uh, you you should uh, acknowledge the fact that they their their presence was very much merited based on what they've done over the last two or three years and then once you have a final somebody's going to win somebody's going to lose um i know virat said that he would prefer a three test match series final um, i hope ICC is able to find that space in the calendar, but all said and done, I think just given the um, given the structure of the championship and given the two finalists that are in there, I think um, New Zealand merited a place. And in the Test match, they played they played well. The the conditions were a little bit more suited to them, and they they, they exploited them um, to to the best. And on the last day, I think their 
their bowlers were just absolutely superb to force a result. Sure. Uh, let, let's hold that thought in the three-test final. That was one of my questions. But uh, overall, you know, you did say like, you know, there have been some inconsistencies in how this format was and then uh, COVID, you know, emerged last mm-hmm. year and then mm-hmm. they reshaped, you know, some of, uh, even reframed some of the rules, how teams would get here. A lot of people thought England had a better chance, but then, you know, New Zealand finally were there to play India. So what would be an ideal scenario? I know this is like a hypothetical grounds. You and I have no say. But as fans, what would you like to see, uh, you know, a pathway for all teams to have some sort of a, even more even playground to get there? Vijay, who was in the podcast with you, has been, you know, saying, you know, uh, on, on Twitter recently, a very informative thread, I would go check out what he's been saying. You know, not all teams are created equal. And, you know, that's the fact. You yeah. know, even, you know, the home games and, you know, the two test series, a lot of people have issues with that. But then there is also the co the coexisting reality of a packed cricket calendar. It is not a sport that it used to be when we were growing up in the, you know, in the 90s or, you know, in my case, in early 80s. You know, now every country has a white ball, you know, T20 league. You know, county cricket has its own place. And then the international calendars have been shifted, you know, to, to accommodate dates, you know, for unforeseen reasons. That being uh, the scenario, you know, uh, try to examine the reality and what's the best possible reality if this uh, format uh, needs to be more transparent and more fair, uh, you know, as a fan, what would you suggest? Again, no one is listening. I think the powers to be, but, you know, the fans are listening here. So share your thoughts on, you know, what would be the ideal scenario for this, uh, this uh, championship, you know, to, to leave, uh, you know, to leave no grounds of complaint for any country. Yeah. I mean, you know, in a utopian world, um, I would probably look at two or three ways um, to bring a little bit of, I would say, balance um, in in how the Test Championship is structured. Um, so one, I would I would probably elongate the cycle a little bit. I mean, from what I understand right now, the ICC is looking to do the final every two years. I think for 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 a Test Championship, uh, that's too short a cycle. I mean, I can understand a two-year cycle. Uh, for T20 World Cups, but I think for for test for a test championship, I would stretch it to about three years or four years, um, just because it, it takes that much time for a test team to develop um, and and show results and be consistent. Um, the other thing is that I would like to see it's not feasible for a A team, let's say let's take India for example, right, to in a span of three years or four years play every major test nation home and away. I mean that's not going to happen, right? But what you can have from a scheduling perspective is um, four or five like major series against the big teams, either on a home or a away basis, right? So if you take a four-year cycle, in that four-year cycle, India would have traveled to England once, would have traveled to Australia once. You know, maybe one of those two teams would have come to India once, right? Um, so what it ensures is that you don't have a situation where, you know, let's say you have a three-year cycle or a four-year cycle um, or a two-year cycle, sorry, uh, and you've never traveled to Australia or you haven't played Australia at all in that cycle, right? Um, and so then, you know, people kind of start questioning, but, oh, that team is doing so well and you haven't played them at all or you haven't beaten them, right? So I think some degree of kind of semblance of balance so that you've at least rotated through each of the five, top five or six teams once, whether home or away, 
um, is important. And then I would like to see some um, way by which, you know, it's not an absolute system of rewarding points. It's There's a little bit of, you know, um, factors uh, taken into account whether you're home, whether you're away. Um, I think it, it's a very simple system right now where it's just the proportion of games you've won. And uh, there I, I go back to, I mean, you make a fair point that Vijay brought up as well, um, that not everybody's created equal. Um, and when you when you're playing away from home in in uh, more difficult conditions, um, that that has to kind of count for a little bit further more than than when you're playing at home. Um, and I and this could get complicated very very quickly. But I think even some degree of you know difficulty index that kind of comes into it and factors in uh, when you when you play away from home and, and accounts for that. Um, would would be welcome and i think most of the fans would welcome that as well because it's acknowledging the fact that it's difficult to win away than uh, than winning at home and, a, and an away win is um is is probably more uh, valuable than than a win at home so those are i think two or three things that come to my mind um, right away um because i think those are the immediate shortcomings i see and then i think there's there are broader things which I don't think even in a utopian world you could satisfy. Sakib, like I wouldn't want a World Test Championship where India and Pakistan have not played each other at all, right? But I know, I think we're so much in a different universe now that even in a utopian world, you couldn't wish an India-Pakistan home and away series. So yeah. I'm going to keep keep that one parked on the side. But I think those, yeah, I mean, those, the, those three are probably the first ideas that, that come to yeah. mind. I didn't even bring the keys to that car, so yeah, that can stay stay parked. <laughs> but 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 you know, like uh, you, you know, you had a lot of uh, unpacking there, and and the obvious food for thought is, you know, for the subcontinent or you know Asian countries, the Sena as we call them tours are like you know your mark of arrival. Okay, you know you're good at home, or you 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 can play swing, but you can't play bounce, or vice versa, you can't play the seeming ball, and you know all the generations you know that have come on our watch. You know, be it the Tendulkar and Zamam generation or be it, you know, the next few generations have all had to pass these tests. So on the contrary, uh, India-Pakistan may not play, but I think uh, for this championship to be laid out, you know, uh, in a more fair manner, I think, uh, I don't know what, we don't control this, when will this happen? But England and Australia uh, should start touring Pakistan because, you know, that traditionally had been the second toughest, you know, place Mm -hmm. to play in Asia with the Indian spin quartet. You know, the wickets are very similar there. So you think uh, that is something, you know, uh, maybe we can't get a three-test series, but you think that's something we can see in the next uh, future tours program that gets released that, you know, there are test visits from Australia and England to Pakistan. Is that something, uh, you know, making the playing field slightly more level? I, I think it has to be there. Um, and, and whether it's, um, you know, visiting uh, Pakistan or whether it's playing Pakistan in, in Dubai, but as I said, I, I, you can't have the perfect home and away, um, you know, sort of um, cycle that you typically, let's say, have in football leagues um, in, a, in a four-year span of uh, time. But I think what you can have is a certain amount of balance to say, all right, if in, in this three or four-year cycle, we had, for example, you know, India visiting Australia and India visiting England, right? So this cycle is a, is a heavy away to a cycle for India, Right, but it's balanced by the fact that if you win away, you know the points reflect that in in a in a certain manner. It's not that you get the same amount of points whether you win home and away, and then the next cycle, you know, could be 
a more heavy home cycle for a team like India, right? And again, that reflects in in, in the points that they get relative to the points that the others are going to get. So to the extent, I mean, I'm not calling for like a radical overhaul of the FTP. Um, you change everything that's being inked, but I think you you define the boxes or, or the duration of the World Test Championship in such a way that from cycle to cycle, there's a little bit of balance, right? That you don't have a situation where in one cycle, one team is just playing away and then in the other cycle, they again find themselves playing away, right? And playing away, um, you know, um, the, the a different set of opponents, right? So if you've gone to Australia and toured in a particular cycle, then the opposite is also happening. Australia is coming and touring you uh, in the next cycle, if not in the same cycle. So I agree. I think I think that balance is is there. I understand the limitations or the financial constraints that the boards have around number of test matches. I, th- I think that's that's fine. I, I do think that you could build the point system in such a way that you know a three test series can. Um, can sort of have the same permutation combination around the points that maybe a five-test series um, has. I don't know if there's a perfect way to balance that and say, oh, you know, if you won a five-test series, it means, you know, it took more out of the team, so you get more points. I mean, that's like really going down a rat hole. Um, but that's something that I think we'll have to cater for. I mean, there's no way that we can go and you know, wish for each cricket board to have uniformity and play at least a minimum of three test matches. I don't think that's happening now, given the reality of the world that we live in. But balance in terms of, you know, teams touring each other, I think that's, um, that is important. Sure. Again, and you know, one more question on this, and then we'll get to New Zealand, the deserving winners of this, mm-hmm. you know, because we have to, uh, you know, break the podcast down to them and then talk about the Indian fortunes and what lays ahead. But, uh, you know, uh, financial obligation, that's a word, or the, you know, it's a business, sport is a business that gets thrown around in a lot of discussions. And I'm not saying it doesn't have a room for it. But uh, uh, if you want to, you know, give any insights or, you know, any, any, maybe a wish list, you know, when that words get, uh, that term that get thrown around and a lot of fans say, look, it's not an even playing field. That's why India, England, and Australia, you know, draw crowds for test matches. So for Pakistan and West Indies or, you know, some of the other countries, uh, Sri Lanka, you know, to get three tests is just not going to work out because where will the money come from? And then the other question is, you know, if you want to take the sport forward, what's your view on that? Like, you know, should the purse be shared? Again, you know, this is a very old topic, but just to stay consistent with this podcast, you know, we always try to get old topics from new voices. You know, what's your view on that? You know, like if the game has to survive, we are all the test match generation. We love the white ball cricket because, you know, that's going to stay here forever. But we also want the red ball, you know, to prosper and stay. So financial health is a big thing. You don't want in the 10, 12 year period, India, England and Australia playing each other and maybe an occasional trip from, you know, some other country. Fire away. I mean, the floor is yours. Uh, I don't think Ganguly is going to dial in or anyone, you know, of importance <laughs> to what you and me are saying here. But what do you think is the ideal scenario for the financial health of the non-Big Three nations to make Test cricket, you know, uh, extend its shelf life? Because doomsday is near. A lot of people think it's a lot closer than what we think. Um, I think it's it it, it it has to begin by acknowledging um, the the reality that we live in. And, and the reality that we live in is it's correct. The, the, the top three make a lot of money and then the, the others um, are, are pretty much um, surviving mostly from what they get from ICC, from global tournaments. Um, and in, it, to me, it's, uh, you know, it's a bit about uh, accepting that reality uh, and accepting the fact that, yes, you know, the, 
the financial viability of a four or a five test series, you know, against a, maybe a, even a South Africa now, frankly, um, or a West Indies or a Sri Lanka does not necessarily exist. Um, I do think that the the top three and the ICC together do have a fiduciary responsibility to sit back and say, if we want test cricket to continue, right? And beyond just paying lip service, it's the greatest format and there's a championship and blah, 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 right? We kind of have to agree on two or three parameters or two or three minimum things, right? And I hope it it it, it doesn't... Um, appear that you know we are asking them to scale mount everest of of uh, of cricketing financials here uh, i'm not too deep into the finances so i'll i'll caveat it by saying i might be completely off the of the park here but i think there are two or three basic things that that they can agree on and one is that we need at a minimum a three test series right um if not then we need at a minimum two i mean two is suboptimal new zealand has kind of gone now to you know, just playing two test series, which is such a pity for such a good test side that you only get to see them playing two test matches and no more, right? But we at a minimum need to play three. Um, we need to make sure that, you know, if it's not, let's say, a three-year cycle of touring for, let's say, a Sri Lanka to Australia, there's at least a minimum five-year cycle, right? I mean, I can understand you can't have quote-unquote non-viable commercial team coming every three years or two years but but there needs to be at least a you know you can't have like seven years go away and you know a particular team is not toward one of those big three teams so you need to have that um and i think the third thing is between the big three and and the icc there has to be some agreement that there's certain revenue uh, at a global level um that needs to be parked to um you know offset some of these costs that come Let's say you know the third test match is not financially viable um, for for a, for a home board. Um, is there a way to offset it? Is there a way to cross subsidize it? I mean, I, I I don't think that necessarily will put such a huge dent in the finances of the big three or the ICC to make it financially um, unviable. Um, but I think that's a way in which you can ensure that at least your top seven or eight nations continue to play a decent amount of test cricket and continue to play it between themselves. Because what I see happening and what's the fear um, is that very quickly you'll have two classes of test cricket where the top three or four teams are just playing between themselves more frequently. And then you have the also rans and, you know, um, you have this very weird situation where the bottom half is, is you know, not getting to tour the top half for four or five years. And, you, you know, you, that, that just makes a joke. Of the test championship in my mind so I, I think those are like the three things and that, mm. that i would feel the powers that be could sit down and and kind of agree on and i don't think i mean if there's if there's an understanding of the fact that there's a fiduciary responsibility and a good sentiment of stakeholder ownership then i don't think it takes too much to agree on those three basic things i think you unpacked it beautifully and there's a lot, lot of validity you know, from where it's coming, it's not coming from hard, it's coming from, I think, a logical place, how you can, you know, how you cannot make it a three-team league, because uh, we are not far from a future, when we should have, like, India and Australia should tour England together and have a three-way test championship, because no one else will be playing, you know, at least, uh, that's what uh, I conclude when I look at the Twitter timeline and see tests are not feasible, and every country has pretty much a white ball league in motion, and, you know, even other leagues are, you know, coming about. So yeah, uh, you know, that's good, good, for a good suggestion there, Afsab. Mm-hmm. 
So, okay, let's arrive at New Zealand. I mean, uh, the, like I said, the perennial bridesmaid, you know, like coming in second. We all know the 2015, 2019 heartbreaks. And now this team wins. And a lot of, uh, lot of Indian fans, to be in, in all fairness, uh, were very, uh, how, how do you say, you know, they were New Zealand fans in India, but then there were also fans who didn't mind losing to New Zealand. They wanted their team to win, but New Zealand has that vote of confidence across the board. And uh, here they are, winning a very pivotal championship, the inaugural World Test Championship. And where do you want to start? You know, their bowling attack is world-class. I even uh, read somewhere that uh, they, this test match prepared India for the upcoming series against England because this test match attack made uh, Broad and Anderson look like a slightly easy affair to tackle with. So if you want to unpack the bowling, let's start from here and then we can go on to, you know, some of the other key components even leadership and the batting and the wicket keeping. Yeah, I, mean, I think we can look at the, the the team itself, right? I mean, I um, I'd run some numbers um, a while back, looking at just how uh, Test match teams have evolved um, over the first two decades of of this uh, of the century. So basically, it's starting from two thousand one till about two thousand twenty, and two thousand twenty. And uh, New Zealand uh, are one of those teams that come across as having, you know, the most sort of starkest improvement um, in in their fortunes between um, 2011 to 2020, right? This whole Brendan McCullum, Kane Williamson era, if you would call it. So if you step back and look at like absolute numbers um, between 2001 and 2010, you know, this is kind of, you know, Stephen Fleming, Daniel Vittorius, captain New Zealand and a lot of flux. At an overall level, the team was winning just about forty percent of their of their test matches, and 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 that, uh, that and I'm talking about home, right? So at home, they're winning about forty percent of their games, um, and away they're they're you know they're they're winning about just about you know seventeen percent of their test matches, right? And and that percentage actually was in single digits between two thousand six and two thousand ten. So they were. Um, sort of a team that you know or a place that you would like to visit in between 2001 and 2010 right india won there pakistan won there australia kind of won there frequently and might be wrong but maybe england won there too so um you know it it wasn't necessarily the toughest place to tour um but the transformation has been remarkable um you know since since the time kind of mccullum uh, took over that team and started building that core and then eventually kane williamson um took over from him and a large part of it, I mean, came about from the fact that that bowling attack became much, much stronger, um, you know, with Southie bold, um, they added Wagner to the mix. And then I think Jameson's kind of completely complemented and completed it fully. And the numbers bear it out. I mean, between, um, you know, 2016 and 2020, New Zealand's been winning um, two out of every three test matches at home. Um, which is a big jump uh, for them. And even on uh, away tours, they've been much more competitive. I mean, they're winning on average one out of every three test matches that they play away. Um, and as I said, those numbers are comparable to, you know, where teams like Australia, um, with you know, who kind of have a similar win percentage at home, you know, India is probably the only team that's, that's better than them. India win, tends to win four out of every five games um, at home. Um, but when you look at performances away, like their win percentage of about 29% is very much in, in, in the ballpark of, you know, where India is at about 30%, Australia is about 30% as well. So um, 
this is a team that's been playing really good test cricket and this is a team that has a really good bowling attack which um, you know because we probably don't see so much of them on on our television over a sustained period of time you know at least maybe as indian fans it's not so rooted in our conscience as let's say a bowling attack of you know hazelwood stock cummins and lion is right i mean everybody saw that test match series in uh, in australia um, last year and we kind of acknowledge the fact that this was a really tough bowling attack to bat against and the sustained intensity and pressure that they brought and it's the same with with new zealand right you've you've got the variety you've got the swing of of saudi and and bolt and that you know is complemented by the fact that one is a right hander one is a left hander right so presenting different challenges and then you have the battering ram of neil wagner who kind of just keeps pounding you with with short stuff um and and then the last kind of cog in the wheel is jameson who at least i don't think the indians have managed to figure out is it i think england kind of played him a little bit better um but with him at his height and swinging the ball at pace uh, that's kind of really been the difference in not only in this test match but even the series that happened in new zealand earlier earlier in the year um so it it is a very well balanced bowling attack for conditions where there's something in the pitch for them um and this game to me was almost like a home game to them right just given the conditions and everything uh the only thing that the that this team lacks is if they're playing in the subcontinent then they probably don't have that spin bowling pedigree that will help them win games um and 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 a champ world test championship cycle which as i said earlier from a scheduling perspective is a little bit more balanced would probably have have reflected that um in in some form or the other but i think having having said that this team has been playing wonderful test cricket and they they deserve to be in the final they deserve they deserve to win hmm. okay so I've, uh, i'm at a uh, i have a four way stop i can go multiple directions with what you just said so mm-hmm. again uh, going back to our first 10 minutes of the conversation so i'll add in a theory here or a suggestion mm-hmm. so since they have won right uh, they were never seen as the big 3 you know they were always nice guys but they didn't have the star yeah. power to attract a uh, you know cross uh, cross country france you know like uh, of course like a de villiers does or stain you know that south african team did so you think uh, another thing now since they have won this inaugural championship uh, you think uh, we can make a case hypothetical if we are sitting there and suggesting the next ftp you think new zealand should get minimum three tests in uh, places like india england australia if they are already getting or maybe a four test because you know they kind of won this maybe you think there should be a, a cyclical uh, ftp if you win this you you know like in in us you know when uh, nba starts every year the schedule comes out last year's final gets a christmas slot of course it's a one day game so and they move on in 82 game season but do you think new zealand have earned the the stripes to say get a four four test assignment because i love to see this attack going against a full english attack in a proper english summer not just play a hastily arranged two test series where some of the english regulars were really testing uh, resting uh, ahead for the big uh, you know season that lies ahead so that's a uh, question one and then uh, you know secondly is this attack in your view with the addition of jameson uh because you know you need uh, to take 20 wickets uh, to win test matches forget india is this attack good enough uh to win in australia and uh to win in south africa which probably shouldn't be tough given the team but let's put a good south african team you know place them place the amla and you know those kind of group in here and say hypothetical is this attack attack good enough to succeed in those kind of places because we all know they are good for swing and seam 
can they go uh, succeed in places where you know more back foot cricket works? Yeah, fair questions, both of them. I, I, let me address the first one. Um, I wish they they would play more test cricket. I think the reality is that uh, the New Zealand board itself, and this is just something that I remember reading a while back, has kind of decided that from a financial perspective, it's no longer viable for them to play more than two test matches, either at home or away in any series. Um, and this goes back to the point that I was making earlier. I mean, if, if the powers that, that be can kind of at least agree that at a minimum three test matches constitutes a series, right? So even a three test series, um, it's a little bit meaningful because it allows you to um, read something into the performances, right? It, 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 allow, it allows you to account for vagaries of weather, vagaries of pitch. It allows um, you know, a certain player who's not in form to come back in form. To some extent, it can kind of show you whether a bowling attack can sustain itself over a period of time, right? Um, so at a minimum, I, I wish they start playing three test matches at least, um, you know, and, and especially when they're going to England, Australia or India, right? I mean, I, I think that that just, you, you, you're not left wanting more as a fan um, in terms of the contest, because this is a team that can compete and can, can provide a really good contest. Uh, to your other point around how, you know, this, this bowling attack would do in, in places where backward cricket is, is more essential. I mean, I think, um, some of that kind of was demonstrated when they toured uh, Australia and the fact that, you know, to, to an extent, they, they did tend to struggle. Um, uh, and, and Jameson was not there at that point of time. Um, but I think they're, they, they do have the, uh, the bowlers to at least maintain and sustain pressure in, in that environment, right? Um, there, there's a lot of control and how a Saudi or a Bolt bowls, and then you have a Wagner who can kind of, you know, really um, exploit the bounce that's there on on the wickets. Um, and they were probably the first team that showed the world how you could effectively contain a Steve Smith, if not get him out, then at least restrict his run scoring. And, you know, India kind of borrowed a little bit from that. Um, so they would do well, whether it's a winning attack or not, I don't know, right? Because we are, we are talking hypotheticals here and we are talking about, um, you know, um, Australia, where a lot of things need to go in your favor for, for the results to fall your way. Um, and also the fact that your batsmen need to be equally capable. Um, and, and that, I think, might be a bit of a question mark as well that, you know, besides uh, Kane Williamson and a couple of others, right, you know, how good would the batsmen be against uh, the bowling attack on the other side? Uh, but I think it's definitely a competitive team. I don't think this is a this is a, a team that will get blown away, you know, with um, and, and certainly not a team with a bowling attack of the likes of, I mean, no disrespect, disrespect, but the likes of Chris Martin, Ian O'Brien, and, and you know, maybe even a Dalian Vittori that found it very difficult to compete in South Africa and Australia. This is a competitive bowling attack that will keep them in the game. Um, now, whether their batsmen are able to kind of capitalize on that or not uh, is, is a different question. And my, you know, uh, question, the first question was on the, on the heels of just, you know, looking at the stats the other day. That Williamson, you know, hasn't played the Australian bowling attack in his home condition since 2016, and they're neighbors, yeah. right? But that's how the calendar yeah. plays out. Mm -hmm. And now I think their, you know, their ascendance to the top of the Test spot by winning this championship, I think the sport can benefit because you know it's not like a team that just got there by chance. Yeah, you can make an yeah. argument overall India was a more dominant team, but you know that's why you played a final. In other sports, too, the eighth ranked team can beat the number one ranked team, and that's how who you know who gets a mace in the end. Mm -hmm. Nothing to take away from India, but I think uh, the powers to be should uh, you know 
take the opportunity to promote New Zealand and give them better test looks with Australia and England and India. And that's how you can maintain this team because I think, yeah, again, we are talking more like ethical here and what the responsibility is while uh, the FTP really looks into the dollar amounts and where the maximum return comes out from TV. But in an ideal world, I think this has this team has a small window of star package with Jameson and, you know, Southie, Bold, and these guys can play another few years. So we should see New Zealand play uh, more test matches against the big three and not the typical two test series. And what, and what you just said beautifully, like that's where we should uh, look into but you know what happens ideally and what happens in reality will always be there'll be a huge gap. Uh, l- l- let's talk about Neil Wagner a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, uh, you know my audience for guaranteed who tunes into cricket podcasts, you know, are way more advanced than me. But I'll take the liberty uh, of just uh, exploring this notion with you. I have heard in the beginning some people found him, uh, how do you say, overrated. Again, you know, I, I won't name names. But I've heard that in WhatsApp groups and, you know, like when I've discussed cricket. So a lot of times when this attack goes as one of the toughest attacks around, what dimension does he add and what what are we missing if we just don't look at the stats? Because he does take wickets, he breaks partnerships, you know, he puts questions out there in a very different way than uh, Southie and Bolt are asking. And he's such a complimentary figure in that attack. Jameson is a very new addition. Like you said, he has probably elevated that attack to an all-time level. But let's... Uh, Spare a thought for Wagner and some of the folks who didn't think he added the kind of quality like an express pace bowler does. Uh, again, dismiss it totally if this question doesn't warrant, but I've heard this, so I wanted to bring it out in the open. So, I mean, I would readily concede that um, when I saw him for the first time, and this was probably in India's uh, 2013 or 2014 tour, um, I didn't I didn't think too much of him. I mean, I, I, I didn't see a lot of... Uh, um, swing um you know i thought his length was a little bit too short for a left armor to really trouble the batsman but what i did take away was the fact that and i found it a little strange that you know he, he was a bowler who were kind of like just pounding the ball in and when somebody does that i mean your your first instant reaction is a you're not necessarily bowling the optimal length b you know how long are you kind of going to be able to do this um but what I took away from the fact that he could do it for a really long time, right? And I think what it does um, in test cricket, if you do it well, um, is is that it kind of uh, tends to bottle up the scoring a little bit, right? If if you're able to get your short pitch bowling right and you're not like giving the batsman a lot of room or just rank long ops, um, you can bottle the end up a little bit. And so I kind of like to call him almost like the enforcer. I mean, I'm going back cliches here, right? But that's, that's his role um, in this attack. Because after you've kind of, as a batsman, negotiated the, you know, a, a Bolt or a Saudi, and you know you've really concentrated hard, and you've had, you know, you've been mentally sort of, sort of been in that zone, um, and you've played out that period, and now you're looking to score some runs against the third or the fourth bowler. You know, in comes this guy who's kind of just like banging the ball in all the time, um, and and he's difficult to sort of get away, and you find yourself you know, maybe taking chances or playing shots or more shots than you would like to do. So that to me, I think is is his role in the fact that his longevity in terms of carrying on with that style of attack um, and being so accurate with it. I mean, I'm just looking at his numbers and, um, you know, for someone whose primary focus is to bowl short of length and tie the batsman up, his economy rate is like exactly three and he's averaging 26 for his 200 and 
30 odd wickets you know which is which is a really good 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 uh, good set of numbers um so so to me i think that's sort of his his greatest strength the fact that you know having put so much strain on his body he's still fit and able to turn out um for new zealand i think that kind of points to his work ethic and then the fact that the team's kind of been able to keep him going um and then i think the other piece is that his approach and his strategy becomes very effective against middle to lower middle order even late order players um in the sense that that's kind of like the group in 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 a typical batting order which will find sustained hostile short pitch bowling a little bit more difficult to handle right um and and so that kind of then helps new zealand break through uh, potential load order resistance i mean i would I haven't had haven't had the chance to do it, but I would love to see his distribution of wickets and how many of those are top order versus lower order wickets. But I think um, it's even if he's not taking wickets, he's kind of putting a lot of pressure um, with that approach, um, and and that kind of then makes it easy for you know the folks at the other end to continue with you know swinging the ball, pitching the ball up, inviting the batsman to play shots because that can then you know cause them to look for scoring runs off them um and you know take more risks and and end up uh, getting out sure i mean enforcer that's a beautiful way to describe uh, his efforts and uh, we, we we often again the way we learn cricket we were always saying you know you know azruddin and gavaskar are batting together or you know haynes and greenwich or you know the war brothers we always thought batting was about partnerships but it's more like an isolated job but bowlers work in tandem and partnerships mm-hmm. so keeping that in mind uh, which partner suits best, according to you, if you were the captain? Wagner bowls, you think, is best with Jameson or Bolt or Saudi? Uh, what, what is the ideal uh, combination here when he is most effective? Again, don't look at the numbers. Just take your fan uh, hat on and just you know un- answer this. I mean, this is more like a spontaneous question on what he just said. So feel free to go either way. I mean, I mean, if he if he's if he's bowling, um, you know, in in uh, in the true Wagner mold, where you know. He's he's pounding it short and he's putting the batsman on the front back foot all the time and he's he's keeping them on the crease. Then at the other end, you need a bowler who's like really pitching it up and swinging, right? So you can catch someone who's who's a little bit late in moving their feet, who's a little bit uncertain, you know, um, is uh, is is not having that muscle memory going to to get on that front foot to a full swinging ball. So a Saudi or a bolt probably is a better combination um in in my mind right so you need to complement wagner with 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 someone who's really going to pitch it up and, and and swing that ball um, you know because his style is completely different um and you're presenting two different kinds of challenges uh to the batsman i mean if if a, a very good scenario also uh could be having a very good spinner bowling at the other end right so to challenge the batsman's footwork and have a completely different set of challenges uh, at them so daniel vittori hypothetically um, on, at the other end, um, you know, for a right-handed batsman, right? So ball going away, you have to come forward. Uh, and then once you've negotiated that, you kind of go to the other end and you're just pinned on your crease by this guy who's just bowling accurately at your body. No, fair, fair enough. <clears throat> and I think I'll, I'll pay attention to, you know, when he's bowling next with those guys. So, yeah, thank you for sharing those. So let's look at the New Zealand batting here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Ross Taylor was batting, again, Kane Williamson really doesn't need much of a much of a dedicated question i think he's already an all time great he's heading there fast if he's not there uh, so when ross taylor was at the end uh, trying to get those runs with williamson mike atherton said something which i think stayed with me and i thought this is a question to explore 
And um, he said in the in the modern day great, especially if you look at the last decade or like, you know, 15 years of play, he's just below if, because, you know, we look at averages and he's averaging 45. But he, Atherton made a point that uh, Ross Taylor is a little bit unsung compared to uh, the men or the batters who live above that average. Uh, is it a fair assessment? You think he gets the due he has earned or we tend to uh, overlook a player of his ability because we've been spoiled by the brilliance of the Coley, Smith, Williamson, and AB was still playing. So what are your thoughts when you look at a Ross Taylor and where would you fit in, fit him in, 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 in the spectrum of modern day uh, great test batsmen? I think it's a fair point to say that he does get overlooked. Primarily, I mean, if you look at New Zealand, he gets overlooked because of Keane Williamson and nobody look, tends to look, um, you know, beyond that. Um, and again, it goes back to the fact that because this team plays test cricket in small quantities in over sporadic periods, um, you know, you don't necessarily have a narrative that kind of builds and, you know, um, sort of... Um, get seeped into cricketing language and literature. I think um, Williamson, just in terms of by the sheer dent of his runs and, and and his performances and the fact that, you know, his captain gets a lot more attention than Taylor does. But I'm just looking at Taylor's numbers here. I mean, Sakib, and this is some data that I pulled out for, for one of the earlier um, sessions or podcasts that we had done on test match batting. And if you look at 2011 to 2020, and at that point of time, I was trying to look at, um, you know, who are the the best batsmen of that decade um, and, you know, took a cutoff of about everybody who played, who made more than 3,000 runs in, in that 10-year period. Taylor has some pretty good numbers. I mean, he he, he played 76 test matches uh, for, for 5,000 5, runs um, and he averages 48, right, which is, which is better than his career average. So what you're seeing is a player who uh, probably had some struggles in the beginning half of his career that, to, you know, to some extent weighed his overall numbers down. But but his last sort of eight to nine years have been have been really really good, right? And someone batting at four, I'm giving you forty eight. I mean, that's th- those numbers you'll take, you know, any day of the week, right? And it's comparable, uh, you know, if you look at some of his some of the other people who probably get talked about a little bit more, um, you know, Alistair Cook, for example, in his last seven or eight years, uh, averaged forty five. Um, David Warner in in that corresponding period as as Ross Taylor averages the same, he's at, he's at 48 as well, right? But talk gets talked about uh, a lot more. Pujara averages 48 um, in in that period, um, and a lot more gets written about him and you know talked about him, good and bad both. Uh, in, uh, so the the you know you just kind of have to parse out the numbers a little bit more um, and to see that you know Taylor's kind of been there behind Williamson really, um, you know, as the rock of of, of that batting um, and. There was no way New Zealand was going to be in that Test Championship final, or even be where they are in in their Test rankings, based on just one batsman pulling that weight, right? I mean, there's there's Taylor, but then there's somebody like a Tom Latham also, I think, who doesn't uh, get spoken about as much. But there's a certain amount of solidity that he brings in there. Um, we'll probably end up speaking about B.J. Watling as well, but you know, the fact that within his category um as monga's piece that you shared with me pointed out he's been one of the best performers and i'll really admit that his isn't the name that comes to your mind right away when you talk about the best wicket keepers in test match cricket going around so there are a lot of um 
very much typical to New Zealand, you know, low profile players, I hate to use this word, but flying under the radar, <laughs> doing really well and not getting um, spoken about a lot or not getting a lot of media attention. But but yeah. that's, you know, what they say, you know, the, the sum of the parts being greater than the whole. That's again, a ex- typical expression that's used for the Kiwis all the time. We're, we're doing all the cliches here, uh, nice guys and, you know, <laughs> we, we hit upon all the, all the Kiwi cliches today. No, I think it's it's totally okay because uh, look, we, you cannot sanitize too much. Yeah, we we all can learn a lot, especially I can learn a lot. But I think we are a byproduct of this conversation is a byproduct of cliches, and it's a chicken or egg conundrum, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Who should glorify them more, media or fans? Because Twitter yep. has a space where knowledgeable fans and passionate fans exchange notes, and you know, uh, we all, uh, for, for, at least for the benefits of it, we are all are. Uh, a more learned cricket community after you happen to see how a certain analyst or a certain voice can depict the stats that were not getting glorified or overlooked. And uh, that brings you to the classic case of that article that Manga wrote. It's mm-hmm. a, such a, another Manga gem. So uh, if you want to unpack what you learned and what you already knew uh, about Watling, you know, who is going out as a champion now, so best glove man, I didn't see it coming. I was under the impression, again, by reading whatever I've read, that Saha can lay claim to that uh, title. But Watling has definitely played more test cricket than Saha. And I don't know how much of that as a keeper, but yeah, share with the listeners what were the surprising elements uh, of that article by Manga. I think the most surprising element for me was uh, his numbers in the batting area. Uh, I, I've uh, Having watched him um, and seen him, I had no doubt about the fact that you know he's he's a very very safe pair of hands a very very good wicket keeper um but it's just the impact of his batting um that uh, that that when i when i read that piece that kind of surprised me a little bit i mean we all remember him you know um you'll never you'll never forget watling because he was at the other end when um, mccullum scored that triple 100 against india and, and did that rescue act in wellington um in in 2014 um, and so from that point of time, you knew that, you know, this is a fairly accomplished batsman, but just, you know, the fact that in his cohort of wicket keepers, you know, he, you know, is he, is averaging and creating more impact than everyone around him. I think that to me was, uh, was, was, was eye-opening. And I mean, I think, uh, Tim Payne gets spoken about, uh, a little bit, um, you know, we, we are going to talk a lot about Rishabh Pant in the coming years. Um, but uh, Watling, again, you know, I'm looking at his numbers, like average of 37. I mean, if you have your number seven giving you those numbers, like that's just, you know, really, really good. He has 800s, 1950s, um, about 4,000 odd runs or slightly less than that. Those are really good numbers for a wicketkeeper over the course of 70 to 75, you know, test matches. Um, and what it ensures is that you have solidity uh, lower down the order um, because a bit like India, I mean, New Zealand don't necessarily have a tail that's going to wag every time, right? Saudi, Saudi to some extent can bag fairly well, but Bolt, Wagner, right? And um, they, their batting kind of maybe tended to stop at nine. Now I think with Jameson in there, they've got much more depth. Um, and when they play a spinner, it's Santner usually, um, and, and he can bat well as, as well. So Watling at seven, you know, m- makes sure that you, you still have to get through um, competent batting talent as a bowling side. And, you know, they are, they are demanding more effort at that point of time when 
bowlers might think they've they've broken through. So to me, I think that was kind of like the the most surprising fact, and I'm you know I'm really glad and happy that that um, he's going out at at such a such a strong note. Yeah, I'll put that article in the show notes. I'm sure everyone has read it, but again, it's a great piece by Monga. Uh, so that brings us to the climax of the New Zealand conversation. Then we'll give a few minutes to the Indian side of things. So there is an uh, there's again a new way of looking at cricket, and that uh, that that thought is there is an overestimation attached to captaincy. Uh, fam- you know, uh, former Knicks coach. I don't know if you follow. Uh, basketball then jeff van gundy was a big rival to phil jackson and he said give me michael jordan and kobe bryant and i'll write you many books on how to win championships and the point is if you have a great bowling attack and mm-hmm. uh, two three solid batsmen who are averaging in the 40s you are bound to get good results in this uh, result oriented phase of test cricket so that uh, with that in mind i don't know do you first believe there is an overestimation to uh, captaincy tactics and secondly, how do you rate Kane Williamson during this cycle? Whenever you have paid attention, uh, not I'm sure you didn't watch all the New Zealand games, but whenever you've seen him in a in a tricky or crucial stage, captaining his side, uh, do you believe he 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 uses his troops because he has the options, he has the choices? Do you think he makes the right calls? It's an interesting question, uh, and I think one that I've kind of um, debated a fair bit um, over my lifetime as a as a cricket fan i think we when you're young and i'll certainly admit it to the case with me like you you grow up um, overestimating the importance of the captain and the coach um, and you think of cricket as a game of chess where the captain can be a tactical genius right and play fancy moves that that force the opposition to to make mistakes and i think now um having had an appreciation of leadership in different scenarios, um, you know, having lived the life in the corporate world for almost two decades now and having seen different kind of leadership styles. My, my personal point of view is that a captain or a coach um, can actually break more than, than make more. And let me maybe elaborate on that a little bit more, right? Th- there's more influence that um, a bad coach or a captain can, ha- captain can have on the negative side Right than um, on the positive positive slide. So you know the 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 slope of the curve is much more steeper on the negative side than on the positive side. And what I mean by that is, it's not so much about decisions, tactical nuance, genius, right? I mean, but it's more about at that level of international sport, how good you are at man management and setting the right culture and setting the right atmosphere. Um, and this is again, you know. I mean, you and I, I mean, if you're working in the corporate world, Sake, we are nowhere close to pressures of, you know, international sport. But just looking at leadership styles, right? I mean, we would feel comfortable in an environment where leaders allow us to be, you know, how we want to be, while at the same time reminding us of what the collective leadership goals are and not necessarily, you know, going so far out of the way and doing things our way that we start compromising on team goals, right? But we would never want to be in an environment where we are micromanaged, um, you know, where everything we do is, is is frowned upon or where everything we do is, you know, super analyzed, right? Or we are being told and taught every minute of the way how to do our jobs, right? Um, 
and or we are not necessarily certain if we are going to be let's say on an effort or a team or not right we don't have that security we don't have that confidence so that to me i think is a good sort of frame of reference to think about what a good captain or a coach can do um and what they can do is is make people feel comfortable in their spaces um and to you know you you i, I think to to an extent it kind of happens in cricket. I mean, some captains, are, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, are a little bit more hands-off, and so that kind of anyways allows uh, people to occupy their spaces more comfortably. Um, uh, but but you have these random examples from time to time, you know, where there'll be a little bit of a tension in, in, in the dressing room. Sometimes it's a healthy tension. Sometimes it's just a conflict of personalities, and that can drag a team down. But I think if you look at um if you look at a williamson he's 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 a kind of a personality that will probably you know stay a little bit more you know behind the scenes but it allows people to occupy their own spaces uh, while still working towards a collective goal and i think with kohli india have taken a little bit of time but they've kind of finally figured out that you know the captain has a certain style but then everybody else doesn't have to mirror the captain's style they can kind of be who they are by letting the captain be uh who he is, right? And he's got a coach now who's a little bit more of a complimentary, you know, style to him compared to you know some of the differences that he was having with Kumble earlier. So, um, long answer short, um, you know, I, I I agree that there's an influence that the captain has because he's taking direct decisions on the field, and you know, he couldn't get tactics totally wrong. But I think there's there's an there's a ceiling to that in, in my mind but the floor is is really really deep there's a lot lot of damage that a bad captain or a coach can cause no i think great uh, great comparison with the corporate cycle you know that we all go through in our lives which again doesn't involve the fandom and you know no one's watching us perform but i think you're right empowerment is the key word and in international mm-hmm. cricket i think it's often it's almost become a prerequisite because the captain before, like the great Bradley or Imran Khan, you know, there were different styles of captaincy. But today, with all the data available to analyze an opponent and so much information, I think captaincy or coaching just becomes a place where you can make players, you know, empowered and comfortable and have them perform to the best of ability, giving them, it's more like an HR role. But uh, yeah, you're right. And Williamson does, uh, does it beautifully compared to so many, so many of his peers. Uh, because again, the cliche, the nice guy culture, uh, it's something they inherited, but uh, it's like a well-oiled machine compared, you know, considering that's a New Zealand culture and and, and you feel there is no star in that team, at least. That's yep. how that's how we are fed these uh, narratives and uh, we consume it without, uh, without any doubt. Yep. All right, so I think we covered quite a lot here, more than uh, we expected to spend time on New Zealand. We are maybe 10 more minutes and I'll let you go. So let's talk about the Indian side. We'll probably do mm-hmm. India-England preview in depth. It's still like a month away. Again, a name that keeps coming up in my circle, I don't know if uh, in your echo chambers, if you paid attention, is Cheteshwar Pujara. Because uh, even, forget the fans, even uh, the uh, the analysts or the so-called informed voices are all getting a little impatient with uh, his ability to not score more. It's not about uh, the strike rate, which everybody said it's okay, but at some point he should score more. And uh, his name has been tossed around because India has lost it's a pretty good team. They just out got outplayed by the toss and the conditions and whatnot. No excuses, but they just out they got outplayed in in these conditions by a team that was well suited traditionally and also uh, in the in the in the distant uh, past they played not not so distant past they played two tests so they were better prepared. India, like Vijay said, got off the plane and were asked to perform. But we always 
try to overanalyze and that's what we fans do and his name has come around that he's not scoring runs like he was he's playing balls prolifically you've talked about it and this is again uh, a conversation that just does not go away probably will be there till pujara retires or you know gets uh, gets dropped from the team and never makes a comeback but you know the the fence is pretty divided and uh, i understand runs are the biggest currency you've talked about it in the last wicket podcast briefly so if you are a pujara fan or an india fan how do you approach this you think he's guaranteed few test uh, in england because of what he did in australia and uh, how concerned are you that it's always like a beauty that gets him and he's played 120 balls but he only has 29 on the board i think there's a method that he's discovered to his batting i would say over the last um, maybe year year and a half um which is the fact that he is um into a contest where he's willing to outlast the bowler um and really really minimize the level of risk that he's taking i mean we saw it in the in in the in the australian tour and to some extent we saw it here as well um which means that he's soaking up balls um he's riding out difficult passages of play it does become a little bit challenging when it's not just one bowler but you have like three or four bowlers who are bowling with the same intensity and accuracy and so thereby you know shot scoring becomes um a little bit challenging but it's it's a method that i would argue to some extent has brought um certain results for him and i mean he did on the tour of australia um you know he he was a major component of um you know india drawing the test match in sydney at 50s i think in both the innings it didn't kick on to make bigger scores um and then even at the even at the gabba you know he he kind of first blunted the blunted the attack and then kind of played some attacking strokes as well i i don't get too worried about him getting out to beauties because i mean if you play 150 balls on average every innings it will take you a special ball um uh, to get you out what i am uh concerned about a little bit um you know is the fact that when he's getting to those 50s or 60s he's not Uh, necessarily kicking on and so uh, my my worry is that um he's 33 now and is it mentally taking that much of a toll um and is it is causing that much fatigue having played those same number of balls um against really high quality bowling on difficult wickets um that he's not necessarily able to you know uh continue um and his his numbers are uh, are numbers that can you know he'll probably be the first one to look at and say he can do better uh, i mean his last test 100 was the one he scored in sydney in 2019 and so he doesn't have a 100 after he's had a, he's had a few 50s but he's kind of been very up and down um i i think that method works i mean uh, the the thing is there's there's a trade off that he's done he's totally cut out on horizontal bat shots and this is um you know point our mutual friend sanket had made um on one of his podcasts as well that you know pujara in australia might not end up making too many runs and this was before the last tour to australia because he doesn't play the pull or the hook anymore um and that's something that you need on those wickets in england my worry is i think he'll get all the five tests unless india like 40 down and he is not had he is not passed you know 20 or 30 in any of the test matches but but i think he he will get all the five tests in england my worry is that um you could be eight not out of 70 balls but the ball is still moving and doing a lot and you could still get you know you could still nick out 
and so in that scenario it does does that approach promise better returns than maybe let's say what rahane would do who would probably make a 35 of 60 or 65 balls play a few shots maybe still get out uh and which is the better one for the team and i don't know it depends on the situation of the match um and we've spoken about pujara but i think rahane is the other one that gets talked about in the same vein um because he kind of has these you know these uh, these up and down um swings as well every few test matches and people look at his wickets and you know everybody says oh that's a soft dismissal mm-hmm. soft dismissal right um and i i would feel i don't want to say they're both under the scanner in a way but i would you know put a more positive spin on it to say you know they both need to kind of revolve around kohli and have a good series in england for india to do well i mean you can't have kohli with a 50 plus batting average at number 4 then have the other two components besides him you know averaging under 45 i mean india's too good a team with too much talent uh, to have that for too long in their test team um so i think there's 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 certain questions for both of them to answer and address i think just given this just seeing this team and and given how how much faith they put in the people that they invest in i don't see them getting dropped or i don't necessarily see them getting a short run i think they'll they'll get a chance to uh, to to demonstrate their skills um but but i think there's it's fair to expect more from them i think sometimes it's a little bit unfair to expect them to totally change their games or become some you know different kind of players uh than what so they are you saying so you're saying it's not the last frontier for them because uh, india reached the world test championship final the new cycle starts uh so there is no panic button to rebuild the team is still the best team going around in test cricket for all conditions uh not many teams are close uh so again pujara is a very interesting conversation with the shastri kohli regime when it started in 2015 the intent talk mm-hmm. came and then he was dropped and he was uh, played as an opener uh, and against sri lanka which remains one of his best knocks uh he scored i think 140 plus in that then kumble came and gave more backing to pujara but now what he just said that pujara in the last year and a half he discovered a method where he's gone more you know he's just shut down shop on certain shots and just focusing on outlasting the bowler and you have to believe that had to have a buy in from shastri and kohli who have been quite complimentary of him so with this batting lineup of course you can't say you're number 3 okay you uh, if you could just average 29 i'm we are happy of course they expect big runs from him but it looks like if two batsmen are firing in the top 5 and he's getting you that 103 balls per dismissal it's working and I, that was my claim to someone when they said uh, they should get mayank agarwal and i said i don't think so because uh, if india unless i was a little more harsher than you i said if india has lost the first two tests and pujara hasn't have a 50 and they probably will drop him they they might drop him to get back into the series but that also depends how others are doing if if there's mm-hmm. a collective batting failure uh, not sure uh, how his place gets uh, configured but overall uh, see uh, if you can unpack this here if th- is this the final frontier uh, for yeah. pujara and rahane if india india probably will win this series a lot of people believe that we just have the manpower to do this but what happens if archer broad and uh, anderson get the better of these guys in more than few tests and we ended up end up losing a close series so uh is this the last frontier for certain players i think you have to look at um um pujara and maybe to some extent rahane also in the overall sort of 
um, collective view of the batting unit, right? I think sometimes the mistake also made is, and we used to make it earlier on in Ravid's career also, was to look at him in isolation, right? I mean, you have a range of stroke players in that top six that India plays, right? Um, you have Rohit and 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 Gil, and you could swap out Gil with a Mayank Agarwal or a Prithvi Shaw, right? Three similar kind of players in my mind, right? They're all shot makers, right? They'll all go at a, at a fair clip. None of them is an opener in in the traditional mold of a of a Gavaskar, right? Who's going to hunker down and wear out the bowlers, right? You have Kohli, who likes to play, uh, who has different gears to his play, which is why he's you know he's one of the top three in the world, but who still likes to dominate, right? He at the end of the day, he would like to stamp his authority. He would like to make runs, and then you have Ruhane, who's who, who's a who's a free scoring you know uh, shot maker, and then at six you could play Vihari, who you you could say is 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 a reasonably more tighter, uh, or I would say constrains himself a little bit more, and that might be a better expression to use. You know, or you go with uh, Rishabh Pant and you play five bowlers. And Pant again, you know, is you know what you get with Pant, right? So if you're playing that and you're playing five bowlers and you're playing Pant, who is the person in that batting order who's going to ride out uh, a storm for you? You know, and that's your number three, and that's your Pujara, right? And that's the designated role, and which is why I agree with you that if if he has an approach where he's he's decided he's going to play minimal risk, then that has to come with come with a buy-in from the team, right? You can't necessarily have that kind of an approach in international cricket without the team having bought into it. Um, and I think it can work well overall uh, for the team as long as everybody else is playing the way they're playing. Now, you. As you said earlier, I mean, there could be two scenarios. There could be a scenario of a collective batting failure, or there could be a scenario where the single person is not doing uh, so well. My worry is that if India ends up losing like 4-0 or 4-1, like last time around, um, and, and Pujara doesn't have 100 to show for the series, then I think there'll be much more microscopic attention on him, um, you know, because uh, the media and the fans even though it's test cricket, tend to be obsessed with the rate at which people are scoring, right? And his style of play will expose him to opportunities or to 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 situations where he would have soaked up a lot of balls, not made a lot of runs, but would have still gotten out and will not understand the context or the situation in which it happened, right? And so as you said, runs is the only currency and then people kind of get stuck up on averages and all, and not necessarily the, the, the situation in which he was playing. So it's it's a bit of a double-edged sword for him. Um, I, I do hope he gets um, he, he gets some runs. Um, and I think collectively, if the batting unit is doing well, um, then then I don't think this is the last uh, frontier for him or even for, for Rahane for that matter. Um, but but I think, as I said, I mean, there's a balance that you need, especially in test cricket. Um, and he provides that balance in terms of the approach, which allows the others to then play a little bit more freely and, and play their shots more. Okay, let's conclude this with Rohit Sharma. Uh, again, a lot of knowledgeable voices have done mm-hmm. a total 360 and they admit it <laughs> because Rohit Sharma was not someone a lot of us had faith in in uh, test cricket. And now, you know, he was he, he was always being tried to accommodate in the lineup at the expense of Pujara or Rahane because the, the team management had total faith in his ability to hit good balls. You know, in test cricket, that's not the metric. But if someone is doing that, that can change the course of a test match very quickly. And after a decent uh, test series in Australia, where he joined the team in the mid-series, and what you've seen in this one test in England so far against the quality New Zealand attack, how hopeful are you for what uh, his series could be? against the likes of Broad, Anderson and Archer? 
I, 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 I'm quite hopeful actually. Uh, and I think I would admit that um, I prob I'm probably one of those folks who, who has been pleasantly surprised by his success um, opening the batting um in in test match cricket and and i and i do hope um that he has a good series i i, I was i was not surprised that he did well in australia because i think rohit um is um from the beginning of his career he's been a batsman who's not been troubled by pace at all right he's been uh, able to play horizontal bat shots very very effectively so express pace um short pitch bowling i don't necessarily think you know he's not a suresh raina to who's going to be found out uh, for that kind of polling. Uh, England is interesting because, uh, you know, how he does with the moving ball um, would, 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 be, would be interesting to see. He didn't do a New Zealand. And so we don't really have any sample size to, to go by. Um, but he does have the ability to uh, play with soft hands and play late. Um, you know, he has that finesse in his game. Uh, and he's shown in one day cricket that, you know, he knows how to think about his batting and how to construct his innings, right? He, he does a lot, a lot of this in one day cricket where he, he plays out the first eight to 10 overs of the white ball. You know, he takes his time to get his eye in. And then because he's such a great stroke maker, he always has the ability to catch up on a strike rate. Um, and, and so he... His remarkable ability is to understand which are the periods that he needs to ride out and how he needs to construct his innings. And I think he's trying to bring some of that in into test cricket as well. Um, and I hope it works out for them. I mean, I, I agree that he, he, he probably should have made or gone on for longer than he did in both the innings. He looked good. Um, and, and having come right off the plane and in those kind of conditions, I think he did. Uh, he did really well, so I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for him, um, and and I hope he has a, he has a good series because if he's scoring runs at the top, then then India would be doing well. Okay, uh, as expected, I said it was the last question versus the penultimate question. We have to dedicate one question uh, to the India side of the World Test final loss here. So mm -hmm. is it just bad scheduling? Uh, were New Zealand at, at an advantage? Uh, losing that day with rain, or, and of course, toss is huge. So, wh where do you stack this Indian team performance? Is it easy to just take it on the chin? You lost to a better side and move on. There's nothing better we could have done. What, what is the assessment here to wrap the show? I, I wouldn't overanalyze it as a fan. I think um, you, it, it's uh, it's always difficult to land up in a country like England. Um, you know, have a week of preparation without any first-class games and just expect to win a test match in overcast conditions. Uh, I mean, we don't sometimes apply the converse to it, right? But imagine like New Zealand coming to India, playing in Chennai uh, this time of the year uh, uh, on, um, you know, on a wicket or, or playing in Ahmedabad, uh, for example, like that, that pink ball test match, if you, you, you play on that kind of a wicket, right? And you're expected to win. Um, so uh, it, that's the converse, right? And, and and would we have those same expectations? Uh, probably not. So I, I think it's uh, you lost to a better side that probably had um, the the better conditions, both while batting and bowling. Um, and the the only probably passage of period where you could fault them is the fact that on that sixth day, uh, you know, they uh, they didn't necessarily. Uh, come out with a lot of clarity in terms of what they wanted to do. Did they did they want to just bat out, or did they want to get runs on the board and you know just push it beyond New Zealand? I mean, they changed their approach midway. I think when Pant came out to bat, 
but that's probably the only you know place where you could say they could have been a little bit more tighter while batting and they could have saved the game but i i wouldn't over over analyze this uh, this is a very good test 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 seat test side i mean historically if you see they have competed more uh, in more kind of conditions than any other indian team of the past and i think they should be very very proud of that fact i think we covered quite a lot thank you afta for doing this mm-hmm. and uh, any of my listeners who still don't follow afta please do follow i mean he's articulate as ever and it was fun chatting uh, on many aspects of what the world test championship next cycle should be a little bit of uh, new zealand a lot of pujara at the end and let's do this again uh, because uh, the busy india england season coming up let's get together again and dissect playing 11s and possibilities of what lies ahead thank you very much go get back some sleep if that's an option otherwise you know make some more chai and get ready for the day all right thanks sakib pleasure talking to you as always